I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. All right, everybody. Uh, after about an hour and a half of audio difficulties, we, we are together. It's just, and it's just like every podcast. I just want to say I hate you both. Thank you. Oh, you make me get well, up what, for early morning podcast, and then you make me sit around and watch you fix microphones. So anyway, I do. I do have uh, one one shout out though, Dennis. I was do. telling Christus uh, last night. I found out recently that my nephew. Uh, listens to the Liturgy Guys podcast, or at least he's listened to one episode. And what's his name? His name is Tyson Osmo. So Tyson. What a cool Ty- name. Tyson I Osmo. Wow. Tyson Isaac Osmo. So he's got Isaac in there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ty, love you, man. Keep listening to the show. And that's your shout out. So thanks, Ty. You guys can uh, go ahead and do the show. Has, I'll sit uh, back and relax. Has Tyson Isaac Osmo received his first communion yet? I think so. Yeah. He's old enough for that. Because that's what we're talking about yeah. today. Unfortunately, Chris is a genius. So he has something to say. What do you have to say about this, Chris? <laughs> we do this every Sunday, every day. And yet there's so many depths of meaning that we often don't know. Yeah. Well, we want to look at the Eucharist, start to look at the Eucharistic prayers with this podcast. So in our trek through, uh, through the Mass, we finished up last time the uh, preparation of the altar and uh, all of that. And so now we're up to the uh, Eucharistic prayers, which will culminate in uh, in the reception of Holy Communion. So yeah, all right. that's what we're up to. Yeah. So I thought um, by way of introduction, I wanted to read from this uh, uh, account of uh, early Eucharistic celebration. It's, it's uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, incorporates it in its uh, section on the Eucharist. Uh, and so this is from St. Justin Martyr. Who's uh, pretty darn early in Christian history, eh? It is. Well, the, the book here says uh, in the year 155. 155. So he's, he, yeah, so he's writing a letter describing what happens at the Catholic uh, celebration of the Eucharist on a Sunday. And this is under the heading called the Mass of All Ages, right? And I think this will come clear to, to listeners is that as you... As we read through what he's describing, I think you should be able to recognize pretty clearly what happens uh, in 2022 when you go to Mass. All right. So let's see. It says uh, on the day, this is paragraph 1345, if you're scoring along at home. On the day we call the day of the sun, all who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. Mm -hmm. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. Right, so you've got a gathering, introductory rites. You've got the first parts of the Liturgy of the Word. He continues, When the reader has finished, he who presides over the gathered, uh, over the gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. We would hmm. call this the... Homily. Homily, right? Then we all rise and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments and so to obtain eternal salvation. Universal prayers of the church. There we go. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss. Wait, what's that? Kiss a piece, I suppose. Kiss a piece. It is, right? We did a podcast on this once, uh, and there's... There's really two different locations in uh, the Eucharist where the, the exchange of peace or the kiss of peace takes place. In the, in the Roman rite, 
It's uh, during the communion rites before we receive, but in a lot of the Eastern rites, uh, it's you know it's before the liturgy of the Eucharist begins, and it's based off this line about if you, you before you bring your gift to the altar, if you have some uh, grievance against your brother, leave your gift at the altar, go and make peace with him, and then come back and uh, uh, begin your offering. So this is what he's talking about there. The kiss of peace was uh, at a different spot, right? And you know we're talking about one fifty five, which. You know, it sounds like a long time after Christ, but the Gospel of John was written around 100, right? And Luke and the Acts about 95. So this isn't a lot of time. This is very close and continuing. So what's what's 55 years ago, like the 1970s, 60s? (laughs) Yeah. And to think that we couldn't remember something from the 60s is a little bit 55 years ago, that was like when you were born, right? Uh, Not quite. That would have been 1966, (laughs) right? Yeah. 67. Punk kids. And that's that's in... a reasonable person's lifetime, right? And there's all this polemic that we, the early Christians ruined everything with, you know, the fourth century ritual from Constantine or whatever. But here it is within the lifetime of someone who knew John and, mm-hmm. and uh, Luke. Yeah. All right. Let's go on with his uh, description here, right? So there's now we're up to the end of the uh, Liturgy of the Word. And then here begins the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. This is what our last couple of podcasts were about. Preparation of the altar, preparation of our hearts. Uh, he takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, <laughs> he gives thanks called Eucharistian. Big, long Eucharistic prayer, I guess, is what he's saying. <laughs> That's right. It's Eucharist, not Eucharistic prayer, too. It's no, Eucharistic it's not, prayer no, one. Yes, it is. Yes, That's it what is. I tell my kids when they get ready for school. I say, you take a considerable amount of time mm-hmm. to get ready. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> when he has concluded the prayers uh, on Thanksgivings, and that's what the, the word Eucharist means, Thanksgiving. All present give uh, voice to their acclamation by saying amen. This is, what, I guess, what we'd call the great amen uh, today. When he who presides and has given thanks and the people have responded, those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread, wine, and water, and take them to those who are absent. Hmm. Anyway, so it, I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. You know, like you're saying, in year 155, we're basically doing the same uh, same kind of thing. Eucharistic, Eucharisted. That's yeah. kind of a fun word. The Thanksgiving. It is. Yeah. Okay. So uh, from 155 to uh, 2022 or 2011 or 2002, whenever you want to date this uh, current uh, Roman Missal, let's uh, read what it says, what it describes or how it describes this liturgy of the Eucharist. And so this is at uh, Germ uh, 78. Dennis, do you have that? Do you want to look at that? I have it here. Yeah. What does it say? The center and summit of the entire celebration begins the Eucharistic prayer. So that's interesting. You know, there used to be this kind of equating of the word, liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, uh, where you sometimes would see the ambo on one side of the sanctuary and the altar on the other side, which is not bad to give more uh, emphasis to the liturgy of the word, but the center and summit is the Eucharistic prayer. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we lead Mm -hmm. up to. Prayer of thanksgiving and sanctification. Yeah, and there's that word, thanksgiving and Eucharistia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Maybe this is not the right time, but. We tend to think Thanksgiving is like, hey, Jesus, thanks for this. I uh, appreciate you. Bye. Right. But Thanksgiving was a sacrifice. Right. Thanksgiving always came as a sacrificial meal. And I guess we'll talk about that more when we mm. talk about Thanksgiving more specifically. Okay. Uh, the priest, uh, so this is the same paragraph. The priest calls upon the people to lift up their hearts 
toward the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving again. Mm -hmm. So lift up their hearts. So you think of that uh, pre preface dialogue. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up uh, your hearts. Uh -huh. And this apparently is, uh, you know, so there's variations. So we have, we have what, 23, 24 different self-governing churches in the one mystical body of Christ. There's the Latin church in the West and a number of Eastern churches, Eastern Catholic churches in the, uh, in the Orient, in the East. Uh, and those churches have different uh, Eucharistic prayers, or in the East they're called uh, anaphora. Mm -hmm. anaphora. Um, but this one line, apparently, and so there's, there's a number of variations, but this uh, I've heard is common across each of them, this, this preface dialogue, and especially lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. And uh, I'm thinking of a word that describes this that I've just said. Do you know what this is called? The lifting up of your heart? Anaphora? Bingo. Bingo, oh, right? that's right, because we talked about I that I listened before. to this podcast. That's how I knew that. And I was back, and Fora was back up, right? No. 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 What's, well, what's Christophora? Oh, bearer. Christopher. Christ bearer. Bearer, right. Yeah. So anaphora means to carry back. And so when we... Um, you guys remember uh, parts of speech in the Ana uh, Roman Missal? <laughs> no, it's not that one. Oh. It's called the anaphora. So it's a, there's a linguistic thing called the anaphora where you go back and you repeat the beginnings. Remember the mm -hmm. I have a dream, and, I have and, a dream, and, I have a dream. Anamnesist, Anna is going back and remembering. Yeah, to carrying back a memory. Yeah. yeah, but this anaphora is to carry back to the start. And so this can be used uh, or it's a term used for uh, uh, to refer to linguistic device of repetition. But in this instance, what is it that is being carried back to the beginning? Your heart, mm -hmm. yourself, right? Because the source of you is the Trinity. And when the priest tells you to lift up your hearts, it's as if he's telling you, bring back yourself to the beginning, to the source from which you have come, the Trinity, mm -hmm. to the, the place, anaphora. The place where you love, right? The place where you... Give yourself your heart. Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, lift oh, up their hearts. Uh, can I interrupt you, Chris? Because yeah, I just I did an interesting etymology yesterday. I was teaching about Benedict talking about beauty, and he talked about uh, beauty gives us nostalgia for that which is good. And I was thinking, nostalgia, usually that's a bad word. You say, oh, you're merely nostalgic. You just like old fashioned stuff. But I looked up the etymology of nostalgia, and it was really darn good. No. It's Nestor. And algia. You, that was my you, guess. Have you, heard, <laughs> have you heard algia anywhere before? Like neuralgia means nerve pain, right? So algia hmm. is pain. And nestor in Greek is home, like a bird makes a nest. So you have a pain for your home, homeland. Once you see something beauty, you experience your heavenly future. And that uh, is you have awesome. a pain because you're not there yet. Right? Wow. So in a sense, the lifting of your heart is very much like that. You know, we want to go back to the source of love and right relationship with God. And so we lift them up and give them hmm. to God. Cool. All right. Back to you, Chris. Okay. So uh, the priest associates, this is the word that, uh, yes, that, that yes, pops up more yes. and more. The priest associates uh, the people with himself and ding, the prayer. Ding, 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 he, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Go why ahead. am I excited? Jesse, you know why I'm excited. The priest associates the people with himself. I'm going to say. Ontology. <laughs> Good guess. <but laughs> Column. Columns. No. Well, columns have capitals and, and shafts, which are the body, right? It's the mystical body, right? The mystical body. The headship of Christ taking all the I people. I was kind of gaslighting you there. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Just like, um, you know, Christ took all creation onto himself. So, 
right. I'll just keep interrupting good. you, Chris. Back to no, you. No, no, this, this is good. So he addresses, uh, so he associates the people with himself in the mystical body. Uh, in the name of the entire community, uh, in this prayer, to God the Father, through Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. Right. So most of our prayers in the, certainly in the uh, Latin church, are addressed to God the Father, uh, through Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And this is true of the Eucharistic prayer, too. But some of the Eastern anaphora are addressed, rather, they're apparently in uh, the Alexandrian church. Uh, the Eucharistic prayer is addressed to Christ himself. Right, so we have, we have a few collects that are addressed to Christ himself, notably the, um, the opening prayer on the Feast of Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm. It prays directly to Jesus, almost present uh, as he is in the, in the sacrament. That makes sense. But, yeah, but in the Alexandrian anaphora, or at least one of them, is addressed not to the Father, but to Christ. One of those Alexandrians know, man. Oh, and south of Alexandria, I guess this is in the Ethiopian or Eritrean church. I think it's the Ethiopian. This is something I learned from... Uh, friend Father Bema, is that they have an anaphora addressed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Isn't that interesting? I've never seen the text of that, but anyway. So addressed to the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. Uh, furthermore, the meaning of this prayer, right? What does this prayer mean? This is what I think we, we try to do on the podcast and at the LI and at Benedictine and Adoramus is teach people what the meaning of all this stuff is. Everybody can pay attention on the surface, but what does it mean beneath the surface? The meaning of this prayer is that the whole congregation of the faithful joins with Christ in one, confessing the great deeds of God, right? Because it's going to recount the great deeds of the economy of salvation, of salvation history, and two, in offering the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of ourselves. And so the Eucharistic prayer requires that everybody listens to it with reverence and in silence. Mm, I kind of don't always listen to the Eucharistic prayer word for word, I, I have to say. Not because I'm refusing to, but you know, you're in your moment of internal prayer or whatever, and I guess it makes sense to join your intentions with the intentions of the priest because you're doing I'm usually chasing down Zelly. (laughs) I think kids, when you have kids, you just, you never pray like at mass again until like, what are they? The youngest one is 13. I don't know. What do you, you have. I think when you have kids, you have to pray more than us. I don't know. I'm not saying you shouldn't. It's just you're constantly, (laughs) constantly interrupted. Yeah, that's true. But even you think about other things. So like uh, you, you've you sung for many masses, Dennis, and, you know, it, it's almost hard to pray while you're when you're in the choir, the cantor, right? Because you, you get done singing the Sanctus and then you got to turn the page for the memorial acclamation. And you got to find the proper uh, Eucharistic prayer. And you're always uh, looking two or three steps ahead, right? like you're the MC or you're one of the servers or something like that. So it's almost like the more involved ministerially you are, often it's hard to pray. Mm-hmm. There's an old episode of uh, Everybody Loves Raymond where he won't go to church and his dad's giving him a hard time about not going to church. Finds out the dad's an usher. And so he stays out in the narthex the whole time collecting the money and talking about the women. He's like, now I'll go to church. <laughs> but there was a 20-year waiting list to be an usher, so he stopped. A 20-year waiting list. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's good. Anyway, Okay, so that's you. that's the introduction that uh, the current germ gives to what the Eucharistic prayer is. Now, before we actually look at the parts of the Eucharistic prayer and a text to the Eucharistic prayer, there's instructions on the Eucharistic prayer in the general instruction that begin at uh, 364. 364. All right. And so I want to look at those uh, uh, next. Ooh, 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 yeah. Yeah? You know why I'm excited it. about this. Well, there are four anaphoras, right? Four Eucharistic prayers. 
And for many, many, many centuries, there was only one, what we call Eucharistic Prayer One or the Roman Canon. And I remember long ago I heard somebody give a talk at the Liturgical Institute about how the initial schema, Vatican II, they were concerned that there was only one Eucharistic Prayer. It was long. It was the Roman Canon. And that it was really hard to use on weekdays and for occasions when there wasn't great solemnity and they wanted uh, certain Eucharistic prayers for various needs and occasions. I mean, a lot of people get really upset about these in effort, these other Eucharistic prayers, because they don't have the sanctity of age or what would you call it, the, the patina of age, and they make jokes mm -hmm. that people wrote them on napkins in Rome. And maybe mm -hmm. that's not even a joke, but... Um, what does it say here, Chris, about one, two, three, and four, and when you ought to, at least ideally, use them? Yeah, yeah. Is it two every Sunday because it's the shortest one? You can get people out of the parking lot faster? Well, let's let, let's go through this. So this is 365, where it talks about these four, uh, four Eucharistic prayers. So Eucharistic prayer or one, or the Roman canon. Now let's stop there. What is canon? What's a canon? What does it mean? Oh, we did a we did an etymology thing on that in another season. It's uh well, it means established, canonical, fixed, uh, defined, permanent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Normative, mm -hmm. or does it mean rule? I think. So like we have yeah. we have the canon of sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, the code of canon law. Mm -hmm. So these are these are the 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 norms. So and, so it's kind of the measure the norm. For right. the Latin church, at least. And saints are canonized, right, when they're officially Oh, declared. yeah. Good one, Dennis. Oh, well, thanks, Chris. Okay. I'll keep you around, Which, Chris. You make me feel good. <laughs> so, so this Roman canon may always be used, is especially suited for use on days in which uh, a proper text for the communicantes, right? So there's a prayer in the Roman canon that begins in communion with those whose memory we venerate and that it certain things. Well, there's certain forms of this prayer for certain days. And we'll look at, uh, well, I suppose I could just give you an example uh, right here. Okay. So at one point in the, uh, uh, in the prayer, uh, we say in communion with communicantes, with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious ever Virgin Mary, mother of God and our Lord Jesus Christ and the blessed Joseph, her spouse. And then it goes through these saints. OK, so now how this worked, see, in, in the Eastern churches, uh, they have a number of Eucharistic prayers and apparently always have. Okay. In the Western Church, we've had one rule, one norm called the Roman Canon, which was kind of an overall structure, but it had all of these occasions or places where you could make alterations. So, for example, the prefaces. So you'd have this norm or this canon, the First Eucharistic Prayer, but you could change the preface according to the day, the season, the occasion, whatever it is. You'd have this one Roman Canon, but you could have special text for the communicantes, for example. Uh -huh. right? This so, would be akin to like the common of martyrs or the common of priests where you have variations that can be used antiphonally or, you know, things like that. Uh, I don't, I don't know, Jesse. Um, I, I might understand uh, uh, the so question. Like I if don't, yeah. So if we have a feast of a martyr and mm -hmm. we don't have a specific antiphon for that because like in the Lumen Christi doesn't have everything yet. So if it's a martyr, we would sing the common of martyrs. And so we would use that text to signify that day. 
as opposed to the oh, I see. For yeah, the they're day. proper texts with uh, yeah. comments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's so there is in the Roman uh, uh, missal there are one, two, three, four, five proper texts of the communicantes. So, for example, uh, here's the one for the Ascension, which this podcast will probably come out pretty close to that. So the special form is celebrating the most sacred day on which your only begotten Son, our Lord, placed at the right hand of your glory, our weak human nature, which he had united to himself and in communion with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, St. Joseph, her spouse, right? So you see there's a little bit of different, there's a proper form of the communicantes in the first Eucharistic prayer, right? And so if what the, what the germ is saying is on the ascension, if there, and the ascension does have a proper form, then the first Eucharistic prayer ought to be the one that should be used, okay? Now, similarly, there's a special form of the prayer called the Hank Eji Tour. Yeah. The Hank Eji Tour. Uh, let me see if I can find these. I think there were a lot of old school jokes about that. People introduced them. So this is my boyfriend, Hank Eji Tour, you know, stuff like that. He said you're Latin, this Hank. Listen to Chris turn those pages. It you know, makes you sound smart, I have to say, Chris. But yeah, well, I'm not sounding smart now because I can't find the proper forms <laughs> of the Hank EG tour. Uh, this, oh, this then is the, uh, oh, I can't find it. Oh, there it is, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. So, uh, uh, therefore, Lord, we pray. Mm-hmm. Graciously accept this oblation of our service. Hank EG Tour is this then. Okay. There's a special form of the Hank EG Tour uh, from the Easter Vigil to the second Sunday of Easter. Therefore, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation of our service, that of your whole family, which we make to you, also for those to whom we have been pleased to give the new birth of water and the Holy Spirit. Right. So this is making reference to, uh, to Easter. And so this is throughout that whole octave because of that special form of the Hankiji tour would be used at that time. Okay. So there's another occasion where he'd use this prayer. Okay. And what we're talking specifically about Eucharistic prayer one is used yes. with these things, right? With these things, yes, right? With these particular so, prayers. Yeah. So if there's special forms of that, you would use it. You would also use it. The germ 365 says, uh, in the celebrations of the apostles and of the saints mentioned in the prayer itself. Oh, that makes sense. It's almost like a proper text that just happens to be there all the time. Right. So at one point you're going to pray about Peter and Paul, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, Jude, so on. Cletus so and Clement, they're the best. If it's that uh, saint's feast day and they're mentioned in the Roman canon, uh, this is the, another occasion where it should be used. And it says preferred okay. rather than must, right? Uh, it's especially suited may. for use. Yeah. 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 So that means a lot of people will choose the easiest, shortest option. But if we're going to talk about liturgical fullness, this is something to do. So any priests out there, go to General Instruction 365. It'll change your life. Yeah. yeah. And on Sundays is when it's supposed to be used to. See, and I think what... Um, well, we'll punt on that for just a moment. Let's go to the second one, Dennis. Uh, letter B there. What do you got? Letter B, Eucharistic Prayer 2. On account of its particular features, is more appropriately used on weekdays or special okay. circumstances. What is the appropriate, its particular feature? You said uh, it earlier. Short. It's short. Yeah. <laughs> because it's the shortest. Okay, it's more appropriate on weekdays. I remember yeah, before I was... Uh, 
as liturgically interested in things. If I heard Eucharistic Prayer 1, I'd be like, oh, man, it's so long. Eucharistic prayer. This is when I was a little kid. I knew exactly how Eucharistic Prayer started, and I was like, yes, sure. I guess I was liturgically aware enough to know. Um, but now when I hear you, uh, one, I hear the Roman canon, I'm like, ah, I'm just going to rest in this. So now whenever my wife asks me to reach something on a a high shelf, I'm going to say, I will do that because of your particular features. (laughs) You are short. (laughs) Uh, father, uh, Cassian Folsom, a friend of, uh, the ally and Adoramus at each of us. Benedictine monk of Norcia. Yeah. He wrote this piece for Adoramus the first year that it came out, I think back in 96, and he talks about how you got from one Roman canon to a number of Eucharistic prayers. It's really pretty interesting reading, but he makes this point that, uh, you know, that the, the, the second Eucharistic prayer is brief, right? And it's easier, and he's talking about, and that's not just easier for the priest, but the, the people as well. So to, to your point, Dennis, about, you know, tuning your ears to the to Roman canon or the second Eucharistic prayer, he was saying that, that it, it was used often enough that not just priests, but the people would know it as well. So he was learning Italian and he was saying the second Eucharistic prayer and he had some word wrong. And he said the sacristan sitting in the front row piped up and said, no, it's this. Mm. <laughs> so because everybody knows it because its particular feature is its uh, brevity. All right. It says, although it is provided with its own preface. Now, we haven't really talked about the preface yet. So you have the preface dialogue, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Then you have the preface text. And then you have the preface acclamation, which is the holy, holy or sanctus. So it's provided with its own specific preface. It's it's baked into the second Eucharistic prayer. But you can swap that out. You can use any of the any of the other ones. Uh, let's see, when Mass is celebrated for a particular deceased person, see, this is another point, too, that priests will know about. If I'm going to say a Mass for your deceased grandma or something like that, not every Eucharistic prayer allows that person's name to be included. But the second does, and I think the uh, third uh, does as well. So that's a particular feature that's something other than brevity, right? It's it's useful yes. and helpful in, in yeah. certain occasions. And something on the mind of liturgical reformers was the limitations of the no options before Vatican II. It must be this way or else, and then you'd violate liturgical law, and it didn't suit the occasion. Now we kind of complain. We have so many options that nobody knows what to do anymore. But you can kind of see why they might want an option like that. Yeah. Do you remember the the genesis of this prayer? Isn't this the one written on a napkin in a cafe in Rome? <laughs> I don't know. Boy, boy, yeah, here's somebody. The, the, the thinking is, is that uh, this was composed by Hippolytus of Rome in oh, the 3rd yeah. century and that, that thing called apostolic uh, traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this at least is what the scholarship was suggesting 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. But since that time, uh, that's really been called into, into doubt. So where it came from, who wrote it, when it was written is uh, not as uh, we're not as confident about uh, those answers as uh, they once were apparently all right let's go to the third one uh let's see eucharistic prayer three may be said with any preface right so i didn't count the prefaces before this podcast let's say there's what 80 prefaces there's a lot of them there are but again this this seems to be now there weren't 80 prefaces before the council i don't know how many there were but this was kind of the the format of the roman canon right the preface is one of those things that was changeable so three may be used with any preface its use should be preferred on sundays and festive days and it also has a, a place to mention uh, the deceased in it now that's okay. interesting because eucharistic prayer one is preferred on sundays but this one is preferred on sundays as well right so 
I guess it's just saying they're both suitable for Sunday. If you're going to use it, one or three, mm-hmm. use it on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but see already what, what's happening, right? So one and three preferred on Sundays, two preferred on weekdays, and we're doing it in, in a lot of places, you know, just isn't that the, the opposite. Move. Isn't that the classic Catholic move? We do everything exactly <laughs> backwards. It's like propers and hymns. Just do it uh, in yeah. reverse. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, the fourth uh, Eucharistic prayer has an invariable preface, right? So if you use the fourth one, you've got to use that preface because in the fourth Eucharistic prayer, it it is kind of recounting in a linear way the entire history of salvation, okay? And we almost never uh, hear it, Eucharistic prayer four, at least in my experience. And when they do, why? is it, is it too long? I don't know. But, or they don't, they don't know about it. Whenever I do hear it, suddenly it sounds so refreshing. I was like, what is all mm-hmm. this beauty? It's actually quite beautiful text, as I recall. Yeah. It says it may be used when a mass has no preface of its own, right? Because some there are some prefaces written for specific seasons, feasts, and things like that. Uh, and on Sundays in ordinary time. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so the, the reason I hear that we don't hear it is because uh, it's the, the, the mention. Well, here's the preface. Let me read the preface. Now, when I hear this, Dennis, I'm sort of thinking, oh, fa- Father's going off script. What is he doing? I'm, I've never heard this prayer before. <laughs> so, this is the, the preface for the fourth Eucharistic prayer. It is truly right to give you thanks, truly just to give you glory, Father most holy, for you are the one God living and true, existing before all ages and abiding for all eternity, dwelling in unapproachable light. See, this is... Think of what the economy of salvation is. It begins in the heart of the Trinity, and then God sort of pours himself out into creation. Yet you who alone are good, the source of life, have made all that is, and that you might fill your creatures with your blessings and bring joy to many of them by the glory of your light. And so in the presence of, uh, in your presence are countless hosts of angels who serve you day and night, and gazing upon the glory of your face, glorify you without ceasing. With them too, uh, we confess your name in exaltation, giving voice to every creature under heaven we acclaim. And then we do this holy, holy. And then the narrative uh, continues. And at one point it says, you formed man in your own image. And apparently this was something that was disagreeable to many. The, uh, it wasn't inclusive enough. Um, oh, is so that why? Yeah. That's what I hear. I don't know. Well, you know, this, this has a tone that kind of reminds me a bit of the... Uh, exalted or uh, sort of Eastern, right? You, God, were in perfect light, and in your love, you decided to, you know, pour yourself out. There's this kind of kenosis, and then all this stuff. Now, people say, and maybe you know more than this, that this was based on, in part, uh, Saint Basil's Byzantine liturgy, and also the Apostolic Constitutions, which would have this kind of Eastern flavor to it, which is lovely to hear. Yeah, that, that's what I gather, too, is that Roman canon is uh, quintessentially a Western uh, Roman uh, second Eucharistic prayer from the supposed apostolic traditions. And then the third and fourth adopted from different or inspired by different uh, Eastern uh, anaphora, anaphorae. In any case. All right. So there's at least an introduction to the Eucharistic prayers. All right. That uh, this is kind of the, the really the heart of the mystery. Um we saw how the germ describes it. We saw also how the general instruction of the Roman Missal uh, talks about its features and what makes them uh, unique or proper to particular days and not others. So maybe in the next podcast, we'll move on to uh, kind of the different parts of the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, priests, boys and girls, 
ships at sea. Eucharistic prayer, too, is not your catch-all for everything. There are, might be an occasion, weekdays or other reasons, but the church's mind really is one or three. And bring four out of obscurity. It's lovely and beautiful. I love it. Uh, should we uh, take a liturgy question? As long as it's short and mentions Chris by name. <laughs> <laughs> Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Okay, this week we have a question from Jackson. Jackson says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Hello, Jackson. Jackson. Action Jackson. Action Jackson. Uh, like always, he has lots of fond things to say about the liturgy guys, but the text of his question is... Wait, wait, wait. What are some of them, Jesse? He says, I really enjoy the witty banter of Jesse Weiler. <laughs> Primarily Jesse Weiler. Now we know you're lying. I can tolerate I can tolerate conversation from Dennis and Chris, but I only really tune in to listen to Jesse. All right. Insight. We love you, Action Thank Jackson. You. I agree. Thank you, Jesse. And, and do, I do not thank Dennis or Chris. That's basically Okay, what got it. Just to surmise, I don't want to put, I mean, I want to do a direct quote. It might be insulting to you guys. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for softening Jackson, that. <laughs> right. Jackson says, I often wondered about the celebration of Ascension Thursday and how it's moved to the Sunday following Thursday. Is it possible to celebrate Ascension on Thursday still? Is there a legitimate option for that? Mm. Isn't that weird, mm. Chris? Oh, I love that you're mm. both responses. Mm. Yeah, or like mm. Patty and Selma from The Simpsons. Mm. <laughs> That's how we're, you know we're old. Is it possible to celebrate Ascension on Ascension Thursday? Is this what happens mm. when the options become normative? We forget the original intention. But I'm looking at the Germ 25. and uh, Or is it 113, page 113? In the, on the 40th day after Easter, the Ascension of the Lord is celebrated, right? So it's not really about being on... Thursday per se, right? It's the fact that 40 days is meaning, biblical meaning, 40 days of Christ in the desert, 40 days of this and that with the Israelites. 40 days is an important number. What's the 40th day after Christmas? You know? Jesse? I do not know. It's a candle mass, the presentation in the temple. Isn't that correct? 40 days. And I learned this from grading one of your students' papers uh, this uh, last week, Jesse, that the earliest day apparently that uh, Ash Wednesday can fall, I think it's February 3rd or it might be February 4th, but it's right in there. That, yeah. Isn't that great wow. though? That, that just how seamless this liturgical calendar is. Anyway, go back to you, Dennis, 40 days. That's 40, all. 40, well, so 40. why would they move it on Sunday? I guess because a lot of people aren't free on Thursdays, like a lot of required days, you know, they like to move them on a day when people are already at mass. So at least they get it, which does seem like a concession to our Total laziness. Mm. <laughs> I love concessions to my laziness. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you read some of the older documents in the liturgical movement, they're talking about how the world had shifted from agricultural to industrial and people moved to the cities and they weren't actually free to come to liturgies mm. anymore. Um, and they wanted people to do this. So th- this is a little bit more than a concession to our modern day laziness. It started uh, quite a long time ago. Mm, yeah. so is that right? That's why you can move it to Sunday, right? Because it's better to have it on Sunday than to have nobody go. Yeah, yeah. Because so, you can have all of the robust fullness of a Sunday liturgy uh, rather than the kind of the sparsely attended anemic celebration on Thursday. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> whatever but, you think of that. But can, but can you celebrate it on Thursday? Yeah. Let's stick well, to that. Okay, yeah. That's the norm. Right. Yeah. Answer the question. <laughs> Jerk. Jerk. Uh, so, well, there's a number of, of holy days of obligation that bishops can transfer off of you know, a weekday to a Sunday. So Epiphany can move off of the sixth and go to the next Sunday. Corpus Christi goes from the, what, the second Thursday after Trinity Sunday, or I can't remember what it is, to the next Sunday. Uh, and Ascension is one of those as well. The, the determination, though, is made um, within a conference by local provinces, so some of the provinces of the United States, most of them, have moved it to the Sunday. So in Wisconsin, Illinois, Kansas. Um, other provinces have not. So a lot of the East Coast uh, provinces, it's still on Thursday. And uh, the provinces, the province of Nebraska, the three dioceses in Nebraska is still on Thursday. Wow. Nebraska is so, its own province, huh? It is. It is. Yeah. So, so it, it varies for, from location to location. Uh, but I think you have to follow, your, the, yeah, I think you do, you have to follow the liturgical law in whatever occasion, whatever location you have to be in. What's interesting to me is that I don't know how this would, um, let's, let's say, do you have ex- celebrations of the extraordinary form or... According to the preconciliar books, Dennis at uh, Benedictine, we do have um, one mass on Sundays in extraordinary form. Okay, so let's say it's a, let's say it's Ascension Sunday, and you go to the uh, preconciliar. Form, it's yeah. not going to be Ascension Sunday. It's not going to. Okay, because they, according to the calendar, see, because the the liturgical calendar is a part of the missal, and so it's a part of the package deal. I think of the missal as I understand it, that you would follow that calendar. But again, how the 1962 calendar mixes or doesn't with the 1983 Code of Canon Law, which is where it gives bishops permission to transfer it, uh, some of these things are you know, difficult to work out. But I think that would be an occasion if you're going to celebrate or attend a, a mass according to the preconciliar books on the 40th day after Easter. I'm guessing that's probably going to be the uh, ascension. But so... No, no clear answer again. But it is normative to have it on Thursday. The moving it to Sunday is a concession, right? Now, it may be pastorally helpful, but it's not mm-hmm. really the intended goal of the church. So, In a perfect world, it would be on the 40th day. I remember many years ago, I went out to Kansas, and I still lived in Illinois for uh, ordination, and it was right over Ascension. And on Thursday, I was in Kansas, and it had been moved to Sunday, and then I had to drive to... Uh, South Dakota, where it hadn't been moved to Sunday. So I missed it on Thursday and then missed it on Sunday because I was in two different <laughs> provinces. Ooh. I got no ascension that weekend. Wow. For me. Wow. Fortunately, I had a priest with me who just celebrated Mass himself. And, but had he not been with me, it would have been, uh, I would have been I mean, denied my ascension. How selfish of Jesus not to rise just a couple of days to later. To rise to the you occasion. Mm-hmm. I mean, could, it, could he have just... Given us a weekend. Well, but, yes. but yeah. you know, not to have this go on forever. What's the Paschal mystery? What are the component parts of the Paschal mystery? Life, death, Christ is born. He died. He, ro- he rose. Right. Suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so you mm-hmm. get uh, suffering, death, resurrection during the Triduum, and then the ascension really is sort of a feels like an afterthought, but it's a, it's a constituent part of the Paschal mystery. And then to compound mm-hmm. the problem, you know, I think, in my opinion, <laughs> you move it over to the Sunday, uh, then it, it really has kind of a extraneous uh, feel about it, at least to me, mm-hmm. anyway. 
All right, Jackson. Well, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God God bless. bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.